0: We're thankful and grateful to have Dr. Michael Easley with us again this morning, and would would love to uh, welcome him this morning. Thank you, Mo. It's uh, humbling to be here. I appreciate Darren's invitation uh, to, to open the word and to, and to be with you all. A couple weeks back, we took a look at Psalm 116, the first few verses. And for those of you who, who may not have been here, just a quick review. Um, we talked about what we love. We talked about the things we love. Uh, you might love your house. You might love your dog. You might love your horse. Uh, it's, it's unbiblical to love your cat. Um, all of God's people said, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, my, my, uh, one of my daughters wants a little pig, and she wants a goat because she loves little pigs and little goats. And I said, well, we will not goat or pig sit. And if you bring that pig over, we might have bacon the next time I see you. Uh, we, we love things for different reasons. We, we love a Mexican restaurant. We love our car. We love a brand. We love some product. And uh, the reasons for loving things and people are interesting. The problem I have, and I suggest perhaps what you do as well, is how do I translate the love of that kind of thing to loving God? It's it's different nomenclature. It's different language. Because I can talk about, you know, if you want a truck, you should you should get a truck like mine. Why don't you drive mine for a couple of days, and you'll see why it's such a great vehicle. If you want an SUV, if you you know, other people will sell the thing that you like. If you're into, you know, if it's a small business and you have certain products that you love, you're you're ready to peddle those. Not I mean that in a bad way, but if you love something. You talk about it. You, you tell people about it. But when it comes to loving God, the same language, the same affect, the same emotions do not translate for me. Maybe they do for you. But it's a different relationship, loving God, the way we love things and stuff. And it's fine. It's not wrong or bad. The psalm in chapter 116, the first seven verses, essentially says if you The psalmist says, I love God because he hears my prayers and inclines his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him all the days of my life. In summary, the psalmist is saying, I love God because he loves me, hears my prayers, and because of that, I'll call on him forever. It's not God's character, but I would inject the thought, even if he never did one more thing for you. The psalmist is saying, I love God because he hears my prayer, he listens to me, he knows my heart, he knows my issues, and because he hears me, I will call on him all the day of my life. Now, today I want you to think about how we talk about that which we love. So, for example, if you love a Mexican restaurant, or you're, you might talk about it. You'll explain why this is the best one, why you like this phone, why you like this doctor, why you like fill in the blank. And you'll elaborate on it. Um, I have a a grandson who's seven and a half months old. He can not only crawl and pull up and sports two teeth, he's reading. Not really. But when I talk about my grandson, I'm happy to brag about all his accomplishments. And, of course, your grandchildren, look at my grandson, look at my granddaughter, right? Right? And we'll talk about something that we love with great terms. And I I, I refuse to show people more than two pictures. I've made a commitment. I'll show you two pictures of Isaac. If you want to see him after service, find me. I'll show you two pictures of my grandson. I resisted the daring way to put it up. (laughs) He can get away with that. I can't. But um, if you love God, you will call on him all the days of your life. And secondly, if you love God, you will tell others about him. That's where this psalm is going. So let's take a look at it and see if we can unpack some of it in more detail. Uh, In verses 7 to 9, the faithful, the worshiper, the believer is recalling the Lord's great salvation. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living." Again, for those of you who may or may not have been here on the twenty fourth of June, we talked a little bit about this. There's there's nomenclature today that was self talk counselors will will rightly or wrongly say you need to talk to yourself. You need to reprogram your thinking because we all have these pathways that aren't always healthy. Well. Whether that's good or bad, I'll leave to you. But one kind of self-talk that's always beneficial is using God's Word to remind us. We call it confessionals, reminding us what God has said in His Word. And here the psalmist is saying, return to your rest. I suggest that the psalm was a life-from-death situation, probably a physical illness and so he's been saved and delivered from that illness, and he's blessing God and saying, I love God. I'll call in all my life, and I will remind myself. Uh, many of us in this room know the old hymn, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, Count Your Many Blessings, See What God... Kind of an old ditty, you know? The tune ain't so good, but the lyrics are pretty good theology, right? pretty good practice. Have you done that exercise in recent years? Have you counted your blessings that he gave you a spouse that's faithful and good, that he's forgiven your sins, that he gave you some kids, some grandkids, that you have a job, that your health, no matter what it is, you're here today. You see, the problem with all of us is comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. If I compare myself to my former health, my former life, my former wealth, whatever it is, if I compare myself to somebody else, You know, I never compare myself to someone lower. It's always someone with a bigger, better, newer, more. And then I lose the gratitude for what I do have. The psalmist is telling us indirectly here that complaining uh, is of no benefit, but gratitude and reminding the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Soul, take stock. Stop, take stock and know that he has dealt bountifully with you. In verses eight and nine, he recalls God's help, indeed, literally his salvation, and he uses a threefold parallelism. Now, I offered you some time back, and some of you have taken up on it, but I think it's now on conduit's site on on the Facebook. You can download a little PDF that may or may not be of help to you if you study the Psalms. But one of the most important structures to look for are these parallel phrases. And let me show you three of them: My soul from death, my eyes from tears my feet from stumbling. You've delivered. You saved me, my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. When I first studied this, I thought the order seemed wrong. We should thank God for the little things, the stumbling, and the tears of anguish, and then he saved my life. But I can't be bulldogmatic, but I'm suggesting he put the most important first. He saved my soul from death. He saved my life. Again, I believe this psalmist is talking about a physical illness that almost killed him and he survived it. You say, my soul from death and my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. The result of the deliverance, verse 9, is he says a pronouncement. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. It's a future tense. Because I'm well enough now, one day I'm going to walk before the Lord. Now, walk in the Old Testament and New Testament are a bit different. They're not Completely different, but a bit different. In the Old Testament, halak, walk, was the way of wisdom. It was following God's precepts and laws and commandments. And you were to walk in the the psalm. The whole psalm, uh, the whole proverb, uh, corpus of literature is the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. The way of the fool or the way of the simple. The simple is one who could learn, remember? So the whole idea was, this is how you walk. By the New Testament, we have expansion. Walk worthy, walk holy, walk becoming, walk in fellowship, so forth and so on. So it's it's a simple metaphor that we can miss. Put one foot in front of the other, following God. He's saying, I'm going to walk in the land of the living, meaning he's on the cusp of death, but now he's going to walk in the land of the living and proclaim God's benefits. Alan Ross writes, only the Lord can turn troubled life into joy and fellowship with him. Only the Lord can turn troubled life into joy and fellowship with him. And unless you've been in some trouble that you can't get out of on your own, you don't understand this. You, you can't put on a happy face. You can't will yourself to be joyful. You can't force it and trump it up. It takes God's work. It takes his word, his spirit, and his people to help us to be able to have true joy. The world's joy is not the joy of Scripture. Joy transcends condition. Joy transcends pain and suffering. It's not just, I'm happy today. I like to be happy, don't we all? I'd much rather be happy than depressed and sad and introverted, introspective. I'd much rather be joyful and happy. That's not, that's not the economy of language, Scripture. Scripture is a relational joy with Christ. Go back to the psalmist. I love God because he hears my prayer. If he never did one more thing for him, would you still call on him all your life? And now the psalmist is moving in a direction to say, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to walk in the land of the living, not the dying, and tell this story. So first of all, the faithful recalls the Lord's great salvation. Secondly, the faithful, the believer, knows, this may seem redundant, only God is faithful. Only God is faithful. Look at verse 10. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. All men are liars, I said in my alarm. Note again the parallel. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. The cadence, the way the psalmist writes are little structures, let's call them strophes. You think of a verse when you sing a song or a stanza, rather, and a verse when you read a Bible. Think of a strophe, a small section, especially in Proverbs, these little small sections. And most times our English translation is pretty easy to follow it. I'm greatly afflicted, all men are liars. They're probably tied together. The reason I was afflicted, because people are liars. Now, we don't like, To admit this, but it's true. All of us lie. Uh, Talk to any doctor, any attorney, any law enforcement official. Ask any of you who's a parent, have your children lied to you? Uh, How often do they lie to you would be a better question, perhaps. Uh, People lie all the time. All men are liars. This isn't sort of castigating the population away saying they're all a bunch of liars, I'm done with them. He's stating a fact. Compared to God, all people are liars, and they're always going to disappoint. The wisdom in Psalms remind us, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in horses and chariots. Don't put your trust in things that are more substantial. Trust Yahweh. Trust Elohim. All men are liars. Pastor Henry Francis Light, L-Y-T-E, died of what they called consumption, which they now think was probably... Congestive heart failure or something, I'm not sure, but that was a pretty common diagnosis in the 1800s. In 1847, he wrote a hymn called Abide With Me. Listen to one part of one stanza. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Listen again. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help, referring to God, help of the helpless, Oh, abide with me. When you're in enough pain and turmoil, a divorce, a disease, a death in the family, a disappointment at work, being fired, being passed over, uh, struggles with one or two or three or four of your children, fill in the blanks. When, when you're there, and it's not that people fail us in that they're uh, you know, disappointments and they don't come through. They can't do anything for you. They they just can't. I mean, they can be with you. Presence is important. Empathy is important. All these kind of things. But at the end of the day, what has to happen? Oh, help of the helpless, abide with me. I've shared many, many times going into surgeries. Friends taught me this. I probably spend 10% of my time talking to people in chronic pain or who are going through chemo or facing multiple surgeries. I spend a lot of inordinate, and I think it's sort of God's story in my life. I can't. I don't like it. I can't understand it all. But I tell them a lot of things. And one of the things I tell them is you got to be your own advocate. You have to just do the next thing. And you got to rely on Christ, not people. And part of this, it's hard because it's gotten more complicated. Right or wrong doesn't matter. How many people have failed you? I don't want you to dwell there. A lot of people have failed me. And you know what? I've failed a lot of people and you've probably failed a lot of people. So we just acknowledge it. All men are liars. The faithful knows he's always faithful. He's always faithful, not in the manner or time or form that we may want sometimes, but he's always faithful. Thirdly, the faithful knows that we have a response to the Lord. We need to respond in kind to what God has done. Look at this verse 12 and 14. This is a major theme of the teaching of the psalm. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord, O, in the presence of all his people. Now, depending on your English translation, you might have the word repay, render, or return. Return. Repay, render, or return. Repay can be misleading because we can never repay God. Render is good, but let me show you why uh, the word return is a more wooden but literal expression. Look at verse 7, where we started this morning. Return to your rest, O my soul. And then verse 12, what shall I return to the Lord? It's the same word. So the Hebrew ear, the Hebrew reader, the Hebrew singer would have heard equivalent return, return two times. The psalmists don't repeat things to be redundant. There's a structure here. So what is he saying in verse 7? He's expressing a confessional. Go back and, and tell yourself what God's word says. And now he's saying, now what do I return to God for what he's done for me? Can't repay him. What do I return to him? Does it make sense? It's a little bit of a fine point, but return to your rest. Talk to yourself. Don't live there. Don't live with shame and guilt. Don't live with what if. Don't live harboring that you think you're not forgiven. Don't live with all the consequences. Return to your rest because of what he's done. Verse 12, what do I return to God? We tie this together with the rest of the verse. He will lift up the cup of salvation. Now, this goes back to Exodus 29, 40. There were all kinds of offerings. You know this. There were sin offerings, guilt offerings, free will offerings, first fruit offerings, Passover offerings, all kinds of offerings that most of us are pretty far removed from because we know the sacrificial system was complete. But in Exodus 29, 40, there's one ritual where a fourth of a hen of wine was poured into the offering. Now, a hen was about 1.5 gallons, give or take, of wine. So a fourth of that is poured on the fire on the, uh, as a libation. And just as a further sidebar on sacrifice, uh, again, those of you who have been deer hunters or game hunters, uh, even birds, squirrel, whatever, uh, field dressing an animal is a messy business. Cutting open an animal and gutting it and taking the hide off of it and processing it, it's a messy business. Remember in antiquity, no running water, and the priest wore white linen ephods. And they didn't have gloves like we do today. It's a messy business. On a mild day, you had a morning and evening sacrifice on the average day. But there were all kinds of offerings going on. And we also get this idea if we think about sacrifice for very long. It's a bloody business, which it is. But what we miss is, what, what, what does it smell like when you throw lamb on a grill? If you're a carnivore like me, it smells fabulous. The best aroma in the world is barbecue or a brisket or some hens or something on the grill, right? See, God wants you to be a carnivore, I'm just telling you. I'm I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Nothing smells better. What did God go, that smells so good, was for men, not for God. It's for mankind to understand what you're doing is a fragrant offering foreshadowing that Christ is going to be the ultimate fragrant offering that will please the Father. These were all shadows. They were all pictures. They were all signposts of what it might be like. But the hen offering, and the pouring out, and what he's saying is, I can't repay God. What I can in return, I can offer him something. I can make a sacrifice of praise. This is a praise psalm. And as it continues... He goes on to talk about how important it is to praise God individually in the assembly. Now, I love that conduit does Lord's Supper every every Sunday. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. And we we attended a church when I was in graduate school that did the same thing, and we we so loved it. The problem, of course, is what it can become routine. It can become ritualistic. it can become OK, now it's time to do. I, I, I was tempted to take a picture of a family up here that had cloistered together, and they were, they were in some serious prayer before they took the elements. but I thought that would be sort of like not that I believe in sacrilegious, but be sacrilegious. You don't take a picture of that, but it was a beautiful picture of a family taking it seriously. Don't, don't turn it into a and what a simple thing, solid and a liquid piece of unleavened bread and a little sip of juice to remind you of the broken body and the shed blood. I'm sure in your history you have often referred to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And when I would officiate Lord's suppers in different churches, I would read that and then I would have the congregation hold the cup and say I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Stop, stop, stop. Think about what we're doing here. It's not just about reminding what he did for me. It's a proclamation. You are recalling, Paul said, every time you eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death. You're reminding yourself of that libation that was poured out. Interesting, the imagery hasn't changed. The Old Testament sacrifice of blood and solid body, even grain offerings. The memorial has changed, but the, the, the meaning has not Well, the psalmist knows that God cares about death. Look at this, verse 15. Anyone who's lost a loved one, you know this verse. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his Mm godly. Highly prized, of great value, or very rare. It's a turn of a phrase. The Jerusalem Bible has an interesting translation on this verse. The death of the devout costs Yahweh dear. I like that. The death of the devout costs Yahweh dear. Um, If you've lost a loved one, it's hard. It's very difficult. I have been, I'm sure many of you, especially healthcare professions, you have watched people die. It's miserable. You You should never have to bury a child, period. You're supposed to bury your grandparents and your parents. You're not supposed to bury your young. And the couples that I have seen go through this, uh, inestimable, the pain it causes. So difficult. it's not right. So then we go to this place where is God the author of this or does he allow it? That's how our brains go. He he can't be the author of it because then we're saying God mercilessly, capriciously let a person die. If he allows it, then we remind ourselves we're fallen people in a fallen context. Fallen creatures in a fallen context. Bad things are going to happen. As I often remind myself, where did we get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? Reading a book, our Western indoctrination, Happily Ever After, 30-minute sitcoms, where did we get the idea that life was going to work out a certain way? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. He's not asleep. He's not off duty. He doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't care or you deserved it for goodness sakes. The death of the devout costs Yahweh dear. Um, Some memories, and we all have them. If you've been around death, I will never forget. I was probably not even in my thirties serving a church in Texas. And I got a phone call on Halloween night and to go to this emergency room. And, um, I knew enough about what I was getting into. Imagine an ER on Halloween night. Everybody's bedecked in all the, you know, the death mask, gossip beautiful stuff. And uh, I'm going to meet this young woman, and she called me. And her father was dead on the stretcher, and she wanted me there to see and put my hands on her daddy. You know, there's nothing you can say. You just hold them, and you cry with them, and you pray for them. And you know what she asked? Why? Why? We believed. We had pretty good uh, an idea that he was a believer in Christ. So we go forward in hope. But even on Halloween night, precious is the death of one of God's chosen. The faithful servant longs to praise the Lord. Verses 16 and following, O Lord, surely I'm your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your handmaid. You've loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord, O oh, in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. I am your servant, I am your servant, I'm the servant of a handmaid. The, the repetition of this is interesting. We Again, we don't have a timestamp stamp on this psalm. Some psalms will say a psalm of David, a psalms of the sons of Korah, uh, so forth, Asaph. We don't have a timestamp stamp on this. Just for context, let's say David wrote it. If he did, I don't think he did, but just if he did... Um, The king is saying, I'm the servant. No, I'm the servant born to a servant. I'm a sub-sub-servant. Some of you are Downton Abbey friends, fans. You love to watch the Downton Abbey over and over and over. Uh, And some of the best uh, soap operas ever. And um, uh, so uh, if you don't know the backstory of Upstairs, Downstairs, the book and the early films, there was both a color palette and an angle of shooting those films Downstairs was shot from a down angle, upstairs was shot from a slight up angle. When they did Downs and Abbey, they did the same thing much more subtly. And if you remember, those in service were black and white, and the color palette of photography was muted, kind of greenish, grayish, black. It wasn't vibrant. But when you went upstairs, it was gold and reds and royal colors because you're born into a name or you're born in service. What the psalmist is saying here: I was I, my my mother was in service, and I was born to her. I'm a sub subservient person. What is he telling you and me? Um, the son of a handmaid in ultimate submission and servitude. I worship you. Doesn't matter my station in life. Doesn't matter if I was born as a footman. I'm the son of a king. I'm the daughter of a king. I have a relationship with you. He was in death's grip, and he willfully chose to submit himself to God in praise. Two lessons from the passage. Number one, we cannot repay God for anything. We cannot repay God for anything. We have to embrace this. And some of us come from different backgrounds. Um, We have to, depending on our church, the way we were parented, no church, whatever, we got this set of scales in our head. I've talked to so many people over the years, I'm convinced of it. And if you do something wrong, you got to do something right to compensate. I I did this thing, and I need to fix it. I need to do something right. And if you're, like, super, you know, conscientious, you go, let me do a whole bunch of right things for the things that I haven't thought about that are probably wrong, sort of, you know, to get get the the black side of the checkbook built up for the red stuff that I missed that I was underpaid or, or, or didn't pay properly. I was that way my entire teen, up to my teen years. I had to do something. Dear friend of mine, dear friend of mine, uh, by outward appearance, love God loves Christ, and, and yet their works are white-knuckled. And I say to this person, do not you understand that Christ died in your place on your behalf instead of you. Nothing you can do will ever make him more pleased with you. Nothing you have ever done or will do will make him less pleased with you. That's hard to choke down. And they would say, I know Jesus died for me, but I have to do my part. And I resonated with that. And I said, then what part did Christ accomplish? If his death, burial, and resurrection is not completely sufficient for your sins and mine, what the Hebrew says, you're toast. You're toast. I'm toast. The efficacy, what he ac- accomplished in life, death, resurrection, is to take care of all your sins and mine, past, present, get this, even future. Are there consequences of our sins? Yes, sometimes. Sometimes um, God is merciful and we don't see or feel real consequences. Sometimes it's cause and effect, is it not? Sometimes we go down a path that we know is wrong and all of a sudden we you know, start feeling this is wrong, this is wrong. I don't know about you, but I grew up where God had a hammer over my head. And if I did something as a whack-a-mole, boom, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to afflict you. I'm going to punish you. And if bad things happen, the first thing I thought was, Lord, what have I done wrong? How do I restitute? How do I repent? How do I make penance? Whatever word you want to fill in the blank. What do I do? Can I knock those scales out of your head? If I had the power, I would absolve you. I would absolve you. What David said this morning was probably all you needed to hear. You're either in the courtroom or at the foot of the cross. And you're not going to get anywhere in the courtroom, trust me. But we come to the foot of the cross and we cannot repay him. But because we can't repay him, that doesn't mean we fold our arms and we go back into a monastic thing and don't do anything. We're not repaying. That's why I like the word returning. What do I return to God? We cannot repay, secondly, but we can retell. Number one, you cannot repay God for anything. Number two, you cannot repay, but you can retell. You can retell the story. Uh, Last November, Cindy and I moved into the College Grove area. And they've got a little security company they've hired because there's construction going on. And so you've got trucks and workers, and it's always a commotion of, of contractors and people coming and going, people looking at homes and properties and whatnot. So it's pretty wise. Let's have some security on site just as a presence, right? so the security comes along and he drives this little car with little flashing lights on it after the third or fourth day we got in our house i thought you know it'd probably be smart of me to introduce myself as a resident so he doesn't think i'm like you know some weirdo hanging around so he pulls down our street one day and i go out there and go up to his window and i said hi my name's michael how you doing and not not verbatim, but he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. And I have, I was a horrible sinner. And I mean, he saved me and I have his grace every single day. And I lived a horrible life. And he, and he just went on for like five minutes. And I was waiting for the gospel choir to come up out of the concrete and we're just to have a hallelujah moment there. He was just so out with it with this big smile. And if I stop him today and talk to him, how are you doing? Oh man, I love Jesus loves me. He's forgiven me. He just goes off. And I, walked away the first time after that and my gut response was, you know, when was the last time I was that excited about talking about Christ to anybody? Please hear me. I do not like guilt or shame. It doesn't work. It doesn't help me. Please hear me. Don't feel guilt or shame. Just ask the question with me. Now, I'm not saying you do it in the way he did it. But there is something refreshing about it. And everybody who lives out there in college Grove who knows him has had the same experience. And if you meet him, you'll have the same experience. We cannot repay, but we can retell. It's not a duty. How does it become a delight? If it's a duty, you and I are going to fail same with my white-knuckled friend. i got to do my part. You're going to fail before you begin. If it's a delight. So how does it become a delight? Natural question. Go back to the very beginning of this. If we love something, we talk about it. If we love something, we have reasons we love it or that person. How do we translate that into our love of God? The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears me. For that reason alone, I'll Call on him the rest of his life. And now he's saying, I love God, and I can't wait to tell the story in the assembly. To walk among his people and tell the story. Did he restore your health? Did he save your son or daughter from a surgery? Did he restore your marriage? Did you go through a horrific divorce and he rebuilt your life? Did you lose a business or money? I shared many places, forgive me if I repeat myself, but uh, I, I spend about 10% of my time talking to people in chronic pain or in cancer treatments or chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants. It's just, uh, I sort of, I'm like a bug. I attract light, you know, I attract people to me. And, um, and it's, it's an unintended ministry that God's given me. I don't like living in chronic pain. I don't enjoy it, but that's a different story. But I do think I can encourage people along the way. And I've got this little broiler plate email that I will share with them and talk to them depending on their situation. And one of the things I tell them is you got to be your own advocate. You have, to, you have to pony up and be your, no one's going to hold your hand through this. you got to be your advocate. Study, read, learn, get opinions. The second thing I tell them is just do the next thing. Just do the next thing because you can't solve it today. You can't solve it all. I mean, just making an appointment and dealing with insurance can immobilize you. And you just got to do the next thing, you just nibble at it. And along the way, I will inject, I could not have done this apart from Christ. You see, nobody's going to get mad at me when they're asking me, hey, someone told me you've had a bunch of back surgeries. Can you give me, and I would say, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help. Keep that down. I'm the kind of doctor that can't help. But you need to figure this out, and I'll share some things that I've learned. And, and I say, you know, apart from Christ, I don't know, I don't know how I would have done it. Your marriage been upside down? Apart from Christ, I don't know how we did it. You got a son or daughter that's broken your heart? Apart from Christ. You don't necessarily lead with that, but use your story, your context, your trouble, and where God's been kind. That's why I count your blessings named them one by one helps. Go back and remember. You know, I used to live with a lot of guilt and shame. Yeah, it can creep up once in a while, but not like it was. Early in my Christian life, Boy, my teenage years haunted me like the plague. My licentiousness, my drug use, my just debauchery, egotistical jerk of a teenager. I mean, hair down to here, the whole nine yards. I was, you know, you've heard the story. And coming to Christ took time for me to understand You can't live that way, Michael. The conviction of God's spirit, getting into God's word, God's people helped me along the way, took time. And as that time transpired, it was like, I don't need to do that stuff anymore. Not out of duty, but out of delight. I don't have to live that way. There's a different kind of joy in life. And boy, that shame can creep up. Now it's just more of a reminder. So, you know, when I was there, all I can tell you is God alleviated a lot of my guilt and shame. Not all of it. Sometimes I think it's good to have a little yellow flag go off. Don't do that. Don't go down that road again. If you go down that road again, you're going to feel miserable. It's going to have consequences. You know, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. I think there can be a healthy guilt. I really do. It's, It's cause and effect. Logical consequences. You do that, you're going to probably have some trouble. Derek Kidner writes, We may note, finally, this intensely personal faith and love the psalm is marked, is not a competition with the public. The flame is not withdrawn to burn alone. You you don't take this this wonderful thing that's happened as a personal thing and become a monastic a a nun or a man who lives cloistered away with this. He continues, placed in the midst to kindle with others the blaze all the longer and better. When someone's baptized and they tell their story, if you don't shed a tear or fight one back, something's wrong with you, right? When they tell their story how they came to Christ, I don't, know, it always, I don't care how many times I hear a story of a young person, an adult, I witnessed an 84 year old man get baptized a few years ago and he died about three weeks afterwards. And I'll never forget the joy on his face, his wife's face, his children and grandchildren's face when he, at 84 years of age, came to Christ. And I can still tear up thinking about some of those stories. You can't take your story away. Don't feel the guilt and shame of forced spiritual walls, you know, e-, e questions, whatever they are, knocking on doors, cold calling evangelism. Erase that nomenclature, erase that guilt and shame and that model you've created. And just think, how has God used you and your condition, your circumstance? You know, I live with an non husband or wife. I have this. We have two children that've broken our hearts. We had kids in and out of drug rehabs. So we had a child, child have a child out of out of wedlock. On and on it goes. You know what? Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Why did we ever think life was going to work out a certain way? But in this fallen creature, fallen condition, can you and I retell the story? Absolutely. Find the language, find the way to do it. Musa Asaki, 1981, met him at our church in, in Texas. He was uh, from Nigeria. Long story short, he was a product of Sudan Interior Ministry. He grew up in a polygamist home with Muslim and Christians. Uh, his father had more than one wife. He comes to Christ. He heard a sermon on the field uh, in his home in, in, uh, outside of Mi, Nigeria. And the pastor talked about selling all you want follow following Christ. Well, Musa was naive enough to do it. He sold his television, his VCR, and his car, which is all he had of value in this village. And he bought a plane ticket to come to the United States to get a seminary education and later his doctorate. And when I met him, And heard his story. I had him preach in the church I served, and I would carry him around with me. Come, you're going to come. You're going to be my illustration. Come and tell these people what they really need to hear. And whenever Musa told his story, he would he would preach from Psalm 116 and said, "What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits for me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation. I shall call upon the name of the Lord." He died a couple years ago. He became the president of EQUA, Evangelical Churches of West Africa. Some eight million Christians under the EQUA umbrella in Nigeria. Served two terms. Went to be with the Lord very suddenly. What shall I render to the Lord? If you love God, you will call him all your life. And if you love God, you'll retell the story. Not should, not ought not have to. Erase that. I wish I, could, I wish I could absolve all of us of shame and guilt. I really do. We weren't to me- It's not like this is the guilt and regret Christian life conference, you know? All that I wish to have done, all I could have done. He died for your sins. He sat down the efficacy of what he did, forgave you of all of your sins. And he loves you. Nothing you can ever do will make him love you less. Nothing you can ever do will make him love you more because he loves you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In your place, on your behalf, instead of you. If you love him, you'll call on him all your life. If you love him, you'll retell the story. Pretty simple, isn't it? Father, thank us for your word, that it's true, that it's reliable, that it's from your spirit put through... Men, scribes and scratched on an partment and told in an story, and we can still read it today. Help us to be the men, the women. You want us to be blessed this church far beyond its wildest expectations. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. God bless you. <music>